And it's worth coming to. There's uh, important announcements on the back of the bulletin, so read them all. Uh, remember, we're here next Sunday, and then we move to the amphitheater after that. Okay, so pay attention to the times and all those little details. You can see we have a whole bunch of uh, Christian ed classes that are going on. And uh, come to one of them. If you're interested in coming to Romans, that one's starting this week. That's my class. And uh, we're going to be dealing with all kinds of fun things. Um, ooh, election, predestination. What is that all about? Ah, sovereignty. Is God really sovereign in all he does? Righteousness of God. Those are all things that kind of float to the surface in Romans. And so we're going to start this Wednesday night. If you've never studied Romans, uh, come be part of it tonight. This Wednesday is kind of the introduction where we put Romans in its context, what was happening in the culture of its time. So lots of things in here. So read them all and um, you'll be informed. Okay, we are in a series called Trouble Brewing. We got that from the old far side. Mark and I, Mark thought of it. Both of us love the old far side comic where you have, he did a series called Trouble Brewing, where what happens when you put things together that don't belong together? You may remember one of them where he has a farm where they're raising chickens right next door to a farm where they're raising foxes, and they're staring at each other through the fence, Trouble Brewing. So what we did was we went through and found several passages. There are many more than what we have here, but we highlighted several where one thing is happening and another story comes up unexpectedly underneath it. And it's usually captured by the word meanwhile or something like that. So this is going on. Meanwhile, this is happening. And we've already seen in each of these cases uh, that God is underneath the surface making all that happen on purpose. He is brewing the solution, pun intended. And so there are several meanings that begin to surface with these meanwhiles. Um, Really what God is doing is he's giving us pictures of the kingdom. That's what he's doing. He's bringing the kingdom into our world in these different historical contexts that we find in the Bible. He's bringing to us truth and reality about what the world looks like. Today we're going to be wrestling with several meanwhiles. We're going to look at Peter and Judas, and there's a whole bunch of other people. So it's going to have all kinds of twists and turns in the story. But the main question we're going to wrestle with is what happens when we fail God? What happens when we fail God? You all have and will. And what happens when that happens? We're going to take a look. So we're going to be in Matthew 26 all morning. So if you want to follow along, turn to Matthew 26. This is a story of Judas and Peter and many others. So the setting occurs in the first few verses, actually. Enemy number one. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, as you know, the Passover is two days away and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. That's the beginning of Matthew 26. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. Politicians, I love them. Trying to figure out how to get everything done when people are not going to be happy about it. So enemy number one are these Jewish leaders. Right off the bat, we're told, this is the climax of Matthew's gospel right here, the beginning of the Passion Week. It's the week in which Jesus is going to die. 
And so right there in that time period, and this is the highlight, everything Matthew is driving toward. God is handing Jesus over to become the Paschal sacrifice, and he's willing to accept that responsibility. He says, as you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Now, throughout the story, as it unfolds, several men will do their best to thwart the mission of Jesus. Here, the Jewish leaders will play a key role in the drama. They think they are in control, but we're going to learn that they're not. They're not actually in control. And then, in verse 6, meanwhile, here's our first twist in the story. You have this woman appear out of nowhere, expensive perfume. Verse 6, while Jesus was in Bethany in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold to a, for a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. So here's the first meanwhile, the twist in the plot. Peter here inserts this story, which is different than the chronology in John. I think he's giving us a theological interpretation to set the the stage for Jesus' role, his death, and what's about to happen. So he put this story here in between the Jewish leaders and Judas to give us a contrast. So while the Jewish leaders are plotting his death, this woman is honoring his sacrifice. Mark 14 gives us additional details, which are not in Matthew, but they help us with the story. This expensive perfume was worth 300 denarii. That's a year's wage for the average worker. That's a lot of money. You willing to sacrifice that much for Jesus? Yikes. She broke the alabaster jar, which was probably an imported jar from Egypt, and the jar itself was very expensive, not to mention the perfume that was in it. In other words, this was an incredible act of devotion and probably represented a family heirloom. It was a very great sacrifice on her part. Now, while it was custom to anoint honored guests, it was not custom to pour it all over their head. I have a lot of fun when we go out to pray with people who are sick. James 5 says, anoint them with oil, have the elders come, and we pray for them. That's something we do. By the way, if you ever want the elders to come, let me know. Let any of us know, any of the elders. We just send a text out to each other saying we're coming to pray, and those that are in town, come. Sometimes they're all there, sometimes just three or four of us. And I give people the option before I anoint them with oil, would you like to anoint them the way the Bible talks about it or the way I do it? And they say, well, how does the Bible talk about it? Dump the whole thing on your head. Psalm 133, how wonderful it is when, when brothers and sisters dwell together in unity. It's like oil running down the face and the beard. Or I can do the sign of the cross. They almost always choose the second one. I'm waiting for somebody to say, dump it all on. That's what happened right here with Jesus. You can picture him having this story with oil, this expensive perfume just running all down his beard. And he's excited about it. She's honoring him. 
Well, the disciples' indignation reveal that they still do not understand Jesus' mission and what he's all about. He just told them he's going to be crucified, and they still don't get it. Uh, I love the disciples. Every time I read about them, I connect with them really well because oftentimes they're idiots, just like me. I don't get it until I've heard it several times and I've had to think about it for quite a while, and they're no different than us. And they don't get it until afterwards. Then in verse 14, we have our second meanwhile. It comes in the word then. Meanwhile, one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest, probably one of the most well-known names in history. Judas Iscariot. Judas. How many of you named your children Judas? That's what I thought. He went to the chief priests and asked, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Okay, the contrasts are now starting to pile up. We have the Jewish leadership. We have the sacrificial women. The Jewish leadership is trying to plot a way to kill him. The sacrificial woman is honoring him. And now we have Judas, Judas who's going to betray him. So these contrasts are now starting to pile up. Jesus, uh, Judas, excuse me, Judas shows us that it is possible to sit under the teaching of Jesus and still not believe. In fact, go one step further and ultimately betray him. That's amazing to us, isn't it? Uh, I don't know what it's like to sit under his feet for three years, but it's possible to not believe it. Matthew is beginning to give us a roadmap of our own lives here. As we, unpl- as we untangle this, he's asking a core question, what are we going to be like? Are we betrayers? The answer is yes, by the way. We'll come back to that. Maybe not through death, <clears throat> but certainly through mediocrity, personal comfort, gain, or are we willing to sacrifice for Christ? I mean, this... I don't know what the jar was worth, but the perfume's worth a year's wages. I don't think I've ever sacrificed a year's wages. I find my own self falling short of the example, of her example. So we're now being asked this question subconsciously. What are we going to be like? In the following passage, I'm not going to read it all, but at the Last Supper, Jesus demonstrates an amazing grace through this whole story by celebrating Passover and extending it to Judas. Listen to verse 25. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi, because Jesus had just said, One of you is going to betray me. Jesus answered, You have said so. So while they were eating, Jesus Jesus took the bread, he broke it. When he had given thanks, he gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. So here we are at Passover, and he's extending Passover to Judas, even though he was aware he was going to betray him. You see, it says something about the, the table, doesn't it? It says something about the communion table. All are welcome to come to the table. The table represents an opportunity to repent and turn toward Jesus. This is one of the reasons we do it weekly. It represents an opportunity to clear the heart, clear the conscience, and turn toward Jesus again. Because all throughout the week, to use a metaphor, our heart kind of gets polluted. And this gives us a chance together to stop and say, 
I want to turn toward Jesus again. I know he has forgiven me. So Judas does not turn, but Jesus still extends it to him. Now, verse 31. Here's another meanwhile. All the disciples, Jesus begins to talk to them. He's going to predict that they're all going to fall away. Jesus told them, This very night you will fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Do you see all these plots and subplots occurring in the story? The Jewish leadership, the woman who breaks this very expensive perfume, Judas who betrays him, Jesus is now talking about the disciples. I mean, there's just multiple layers here. But after I have risen, verse 32, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replied, even if all fall away on account of you, I, will nev- I never will. So Jesus said, truly I tell you, Peter, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. You will deny me three times. You will betray me three times. Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. Now, um, this word uh, will fall away. It's a very interesting Greek word. I don't use Greek up here very often. Uh, I use it a lot. Mark and I use it a lot, just not up front. Scandalizo. Uh, That may resonate with some of you. You think of scandalous. It carries the idea of leading to sin, which results in failure to believe. In other words, what is happening to the disciples is at its core a statement of their lack of faith. It's a statement of their sin. It's scandalous. That's what sin is. It's scandalous. And this is a statement about their sin right here. Jesus quotes Zechariah 13.7 about striking the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. He's demonstrating right there in front of us that God has planned for this eventuality as well. The disciples' sin and betrayal. He's planned for it. And he remains in sovereign control even over their failure. I don't know about you, but one of the most exciting things in the world is to know that at my very worst, God is still in control. He has it figured out. Jesus is not worried. In fact, he knows he's going to see them again. After I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. He's not worried about it at all. He doesn't necessarily want to go through what he's going through, but he's not worried. He is gracious and forgiving. I know you're all going to turn away from me. You're all going to deny me, but I'm going to come find you again. The focus then shifts to Peter in particular. He will do more than fall away. He'll actually deny Jesus. Now, listen to these verses, Matthew 10. I'm going to back up. He was very aware of this. Verse 32. Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns or denies me before others, I will disown or deny before my Father in heaven. He knew that passage. Jesus just said, you're about to do that. He was aware of that. He was aware that whoever denied Christ, Christ himself will deny them before the Father. In other words, Peter is soon to be in very serious spiritual danger. He's heading right off the cliff. He's about to do one of the things that Jesus warns very strongly not to do. And there's more. We'll see that in just a minute. Without God's grace, Peter doesn't have a chance. That's what this story is telling us. So we got the men who are plotting evil based on intent, the Jewish leadership. We got Judas who's who's plotting betrayal based on financial gain and a lack of belief. 
And then you have the uh, disciples plotting betrayal just based on good old-fashioned sin. Meanwhile, verse 36, Then, meanwhile, Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. So he goes to pray. I'm not going to read this whole passage. But this whole long passage where he's arrested, taken before the Sanhedrin, Jesus has much on his mind. He has a Jewish leadership. We just read that. He knows that they're plotting to kill him. Uh, we have plenty of evidence of that. He knows that. He has Judas's betrayal. He's the one that said, you're going to betray me. He has the disciples falling away in their denial. I mean, the world around him is crumbling. His whole social world is falling apart. He knows about his upcoming trials. He knows about the beatings that are coming. He knows about the excruciating pain and the torture of the cross. There's no way we can overstate how terrible that practice was. It only occurred in the world history about 70 years. Even the Romans came to the conclusion that it was way, way too excruciating, the cross. They had seen it. If you lived at that time, that was a, norm, that was a part of your life. You would have seen it happen. And uh, even, they, uh, even they came to the conclusion it was very cruel punishment. It just happened to be at the time that Christ was here. He knew. He knew it was coming. He knew all that. He has a lot on his mind. This is the context in which he pleads with the Father for another way in verse 39. My Father, if it is possible, take this cup away from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. He's willing to go through it. Judas follows through and betrays Jesus. Jesus' response is striking. In verse 50, Jesus replied, Do what you came for, friend. Even here, at the very end, Jesus calls him friend. After his betrayal. He's still showing acceptance and love for this man. It's a pretty incredible example, isn't it? Even at the end. Then he goes on and leads the disciples to be peacemakers. Um, verse 51, one of Jesus' companions drew the sword, struck off the servants, the high priest's servant, cut off his ear. Jesus says, put your sword back in its place. All who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put, my, put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? He just said earlier, this brings to mind Matthew 5, blessed are the peacemakers. And he's living it out right here. Right here. He knows what's coming in just a few short hours. He knows the beatings, the scourging, the blood he's going to shed. He knows the excruciating pain of the cross. And he still says, put the sword away. Put the sword away. And then the disciples desert him. Verse 56. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. He's now completely alone. Okay, next we have uh, Peter's denials. He disowns Jesus. And we learn some very interesting things here. So, starting in verse 69. Now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him. You also were with Jesus, she said. But he denied it before them all. He denied it before everyone. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Now, as I said, he was aware of Matthew 10, where we are cautioned about denying Jesus. Even, it's even using the same word here. Peter did the very thing that Jesus said. If you do that, I, won't, I will deny you before the Father. 
And he just did it. But it gets worse. Look in verse 71. Then he went out to the gateway where another servant girl saw him and said to the people there, This fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. Now listen to Matthew 5. Because Peter would have been aware of this one as well. Matthew 5, verse 33. Again, you have heard that it said to the people long ago, Do not break your oath, but to fulfill Uh, Fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is footstool, it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say simply is yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. So the first denial, he denied Jesus, knowing in front of everybody, knowing Matthew 10. The second one, he did it with an oath, knowing Matthew 5. Gets worse. Verse 73. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, Surely you are one of them. Your accent gives you away. Then he began to call down curses, and he swore to them, I don't know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed. In his third betrayal, Matthew lets us know that Peter has now committed his most severe betrayal of all. He combines curses with loaths and lies, the very thing Jesus said not to do. Now, if Jesus is going to fulfill Matthew 10, Peter's done. Whoever denies me before your fellow humans, I will deny before the Father. He had just done that. Peter's now in serious trouble. He no longer has a chance. His response, though, verse 75, he remembered the words that Jesus had spoken. Before the crooster crows, you will disown me three times. He went outside and he wept bitterly. Okay, let's contrast Judas and Peter just for a second. Both are in serious danger of being denied before the Father by Christ. Both have done the same thing. They've denied uh, the, they've denied the son. One is based on financial gain. The other one is just based on good old-fashioned sin. But they both deny them. They're both in the process of losing their souls. That's what's happening. They're on the edge of the cliff. Judas responds by hanging himself. That's Matthew 27. I'm not going to read that. That's how he responds. He hangs himself. Peter responds by whip, weeping bitterly. That's what we just read. Two different responses to a very similar sin. So what do we learn from this? We've got these two stories. Actually, there's four, three, four, five, all interwoven together. We learn several things. Number one, God is in sovereign control of all events. Let's not forget that. As Christians, we need to be reminded of that, especially those of you that are going through uh, times of struggle right now and challenge and um, hurt. God is still in control. Next thing we learn is that Jesus voluntarily and graciously accepts the hostility of his opponents and followers alike. Now we get a glimpse of what he means by turning the other cheek. He could have stopped it anywhere in the process. Probably could have demanded his his rights. But he doesn't. He graciously voluntarily accepts the hostility of his opponents and his followers alike. 
Tomorrow's Memorial Day. Uh, for those of you that have never been, um, I'm one of the few pastors in the area that's a veteran. Um, served in the U.S. Navy. So I have the honor at the cemetery tomorrow at 10 a.m. of leading the prayer of invocation and the prayer of benediction. I do that every year. And it's, an, it's a ceremony to honor those who have fallen at the cemetery. If you've not been to one, I would encourage you to come out. Bring your co- a coat. It's often windy and cold, but it's worth coming. They read the names of the people in the cemetery who have died. And Memorial Day is to honor those who have given their lives for us. I want to do something just for a moment. If you have served in the military, I want you to stand up. Veterans Day is where we honor those who have served, but I would like to say thank you right now. Stay standing. Stay standing. Stay standing. I already know these men and women know people that have died. If you have a friend or family that has given their life in the military, you know of someone, I want you to stand. Wow. War impacts us all, doesn't it? Have a seat. I'm grateful for those who have given their lives, but I'm deeply saddened that they had to do so. Rob Mitchell and I were talking before church. They are our true heroes. I just read the story yesterday of uh, they recovered the remains of a lieutenant commander, a Navy pilot, 50 years later. His daughter was six when she got the word, and uh, there was a picture of her uh, receiving the casket at 56, along with his older sister and brother. And all the tears, uh, they found his remains 50 years later. 916 from the Vietnam War have been recovered. Those are the true heroes, and we honor them, and that's what we'll do tomorrow. But they shouldn't have had to die. They shouldn't have had to. Jesus teaches us that violence is never the answer. And I would caution us, never give up on peace. Never. Sometimes dying may be the only option. I get that. I served. I served. Um, Against my father's wishes, by the way. I came to know Christ while I was in the Navy. My father was a very peaceful man and really did not want me to serve. But when I made the decision, he was as proud of me as he could be, even though he wished I didn't. Violence is never the answer. Never give up on peace. So I'd like to stop and pray for the families of those who have given up their lives. Father, we, um, with sadness and yet deep, deep respect and honor, we, uh, we lift up the families of those who have paid such a terrible price by saying goodbye to a family member, a brother, father, sister. Um, those who have given up a friend, someone they know well from high school or some other part of life. Father, uh, help us to honor those who have fallen and to remember those who are left. They're, 
their war never stops. It continues on. Uh, Father, be gracious to them. Continue to show them your love and your mercy as you have with me. Be with them and bless them. In Jesus' name, amen. Another thing we learn about Jesus is that he's willing to meet Judas and Peter and the rest of the disciples in their most sinful moments and still accept them. A lesson for us all. A lesson for us all. What do we learn from that? Never give up on someone who walks away from the faith. Never. Love them. Be with them. That's what Jesus did with Judas. Calls him friend at the very end. Extends Passover. It's mercy. Look what he does with Peter and the rest of the disciples. He goes and finds them after he's resurrected because he loves them. Never give up on one who has walked away. If you find yourself in sin, do not worry and do not give in to shame. Rather, turn to Christ. Christ is always merciful and gracious. Always. If you find yourself disowning Jesus, you're in really good company. Right here. And we see how Jesus responds with mercy and grace. Finally, Jesus teaches us that the road to true victory, um, most of us think of victory as what happens when we die. Sure, that's a moment of glory. That's what it's called. But he shows us that true victory involves forgiving others and seeking peace. For those stuck in sin, which is all of us at one time or another, by the way, for those of us stuck in sin, the road to victory involves repentance for sin. Jesus is merciful and gracious, and you will experience a peace that leads to this victory and then celebration. They go together. Turning to Christ is what cleanses the soul. And you know, that's what uh, we're getting ready to take, take an offering and celebrate communion together. We put those two after the time in the Word on purpose because we look at those as responses, acts of worship. You give and you celebrate communion because of your faith in the Lord. Paul says in the First Corinthian epistles that if an unbeliever uh, looks, he sees an evidence of your faith in the gospel when you give. So I've told many unbelievers, come to church and watch our people give. Watch them give. They love to give. You're a very generous church. Why? Because of your faith. Communion and sacrificing through the offering is a chance to repent and return to Jesus. That's what they represent. Father, thank you. Thank you for this, this incredible story. Um, these people that tried to live their lives out some turning toward you, some turning away from you, but all of them betraying you. Thank you for that. Thank you for recording it so that we would not feel alone. And thank you, Father, for um, showing so much grace, forgiveness. In your son's name we pray, amen. I'm going to ask the ushers to...